You enter by the way in which the king has provided or you don't enter at all. The king alone has the right to say how to enter into his presence. For those who are outside of the kingdom of God or outside the household of faith, generally people tend to fall into one of two camps. Either open hostility towards God or even complete denial that he exists or a presumption of entitlement that if he does exist, then surely he's going to do good things for me. Throughout the book of Joel, we've seen a number of key themes. We have seen a description of how sinful our sin really is. We've seen the necessity of God's judgment. A judgment that he's not ashamed of in the opening chapter after he inflicted the nation with a major locust plague. He says, tell your children, tell your children's children that they might be aware that our God takes sin seriously. And because this, it highlights our need to come before him in repentance. Joel said to come, return wholeheartedly. To rend your hearts, not your garments. Meaning wholeheartedly come to him. Not through some ritual or practice thinking somehow you can get his approval by doing certain things. On the basis of his character, that he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Not specifically for our own benefit, but for his glory, for his name, his reputation. But we've also seen God's heart towards the people who are genuinely repentant. Not only was he slow to anger, but he is quick to restore and pour out his blessings in abundance upon those who come before him in genuine repentance. But he didn't just restore the things that were physically lost from the locusts. Although he did do that. The focus more than anything was on the spiritual blessings. Like all the times when it talked about the returning of physical things, the things that it highlighted were things that were necessary to resume worship. In the oil, in the wine, in the grain. That were part of the daily offerings that were provided so that an unholy people could dwell in the presence of a holy God. And Joel spoke of a satisfaction and a joy that came not just from having the, the produce happening again, but a fullness of joy from knowing our God. All of this for the display of his glory, his character, resulting in the praise of his people, that all people would know that he is the Lord our God. Now last week, as we looked at the last few verses of chapter 2, Joel gave us an insight into a future and fuller blessing, well, future from his perspective, when God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Something that we saw quoted in Acts chapter 2, where that fulfilment came, 
where for Old Testament saints where they might have received something of the Spirit to enable them for something for a limited period of time, God had promised there would come a day which took place in, in Pentecost when he would now pour upon the Spirit in fullness upon all of his children. And we saw the magnitude of how special and privileged that is to be living in the age in which we live. But as we've gone through the book of Joel, from around about chapter 2, verse 12, while there was some, a lot of negative stuff and judgment things talking in the beginning, it kind of turned as there was this call to turn to him with our whole heart. From there on, it's mainly been as they've returned, speaking about positive things, people repenting, God pouring out his blessings upon them. But as has happened throughout the book, one of the key themes is the day of the Lord, a day which is a day of judgment. And with that in and of itself has got two separate streams of thoughts that come throughout this book. The stream of this not being a day to be feared, but a day to rejoice for those who have come to him in repentance and faith. But also, too, a reminder of the inescapable judgment for those who are yet to place their trust in him. This morning in these eight verses, we're going to look at restoration and judgment in verses 1 to 3. Who do you think you are in verses 4 to 6? That vengeance belongs to the Lord in verses 7 to 8. And lastly, the encouragement of the day of the Lord. Firstly, restoration and judgment in verses 1 to 3. When you hear those two words, restoration and judgment, you might think, they're not really words that, in my mind, fit that closely together. Now, we need to remember there are no chapter numbers or verses as Joel was writing these words. These were added much later on, just so it's easier for us to find material within the Bible. So what we read here is absolutely connected to what we read last week. We talk about the pouring out of God's spirit upon all flesh in the, in the last days, that time period between Jesus' first coming and second coming. And now Joel says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather the nations and bring them into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them amongst the nations and they have divided up my land and cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. In this parallel act, after he says that I'll pour out my spirit, talking about things that belong to salvation, he says, in that day, there is also judgment. Now, some people are confused, they think, I think I know my biblical geography pretty good. I've memorised all the maps that are in the back of my Bible. I was like, I don't remember seeing a valley of Jehoshaphat anywhere. A good reason for that is that there never has been one, and there isn't one. Geographically, it's a place that it's not a place which exists. But from a biblical perspective, we see valleys used in two key ways. They were used as a place for gatherings of large number of people. 
and also are places where battles would take place. And in our context this morning, it's speaking of the nations as specifically those who have afflicted God's people. So we're talking about a large gathering of people. In the context of the day of the Lord, a day of battle, a day when God would pour out his judgment upon those who have afflicted God's people. And throughout Joel, we've seen this day of the Lord described in terms of being a battle. A battle which is unstoppable, a decimation. Now, while it doesn't exist as a place geographically, the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord Yahweh brings judgment. And that it is more, less about the where, the geography but more about the what will take place of that judgment. The verse raises two questions. What is the basis of that judgment? And you've probably, the other question you've got to back in your mind is, what on earth has that got to do with the material that we've just read and looked at last week? So why were they being judged? Now, our natural inclination might be to think, well, maybe because of ways it's going to describe how they've dishonoured God, how they've been hard-hearted or unrepentant. But the focus in these verses isn't directly upon how they've responded to God himself, but rather how they have responded to or treated the things that belong to the Lord. There's one word you'll see repeated time and time again in verses 2 and 3, and that word is my my people, my land, my heritage. The focus is how they have treated God's people, God's land. And that you cannot make a separation between how you treat God and how you treat the things that he owns and that are precious to him. Like if you loved somebody, you wouldn't mistreat the things that they own and they value. Think about Saul or Paul and his encounter with the resurrected Christ. If you recall, Saul was a persecutor of the church. Gladly watching Stephen be stoned because of his faith in Christ. On his way to Damascus to arrest and drag back Christians to undergo some form of sentencing. And along the way we see this in Acts chapter 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now what Paul was going to do and what Paul had been doing was persecuting Christians. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? How you treat his people is how you treat the God of those people. Or think about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and goats. A very relevant passage to what we're looking at this morning. Then he'll say, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did it to me. Or for, for the others, says, for those who you did it towards these, you did it also for me. How you treat that which is precious to God 
is a reflection of how you treat God. Now in our passage we see a number of Israel's common enemies listed. Tyre, Sidon, the Philistines, and in the part that we look at next week we'll also see references to Egypt and Edom. Not that they should be seen as the full scope of the day of the Lord, but representative of those who have afflicted God's people and therefore as a result have opposed the Lord himself. Some of the specific examples in our text of how they have scattered the people and taken them as slaves. Notice he doesn't make the same sort of statements about the Babylonians or the Assyrians because God had called and used the Babylonians and Assyrians for that purpose. They were serving God's purposes. But these are people who had done such things not fulfilling the Lord's will but carrying out their own opposition. And the contempt with which they treated the people is illustrated very graphically there in verse 3. They've traded a boy for a knight with a whore. They've traded a girl for some wine. That they had exchanged human life for one small, temporal, selfish pleasure. How people treat vulnerable humans created in God's image, born or unborn, does not escape the eye of our God, does not escape his deep concern of the Lord who made them and who will one day judge all and call all to give an account. God cares how you treat that which is precious to him. Because how you treat what is precious to him is a reflection of how you think of him. So that's the why, but what has it got to do with what we've looked at last week? We saw last week at this time when the, the Spirit would be poured out, he, said in the, he says afterwards from Joel's perspective, but when Peter quotes it at Pentecost, he says, in the last days, and he says, this is what you have seen fulfilled in your eyes this day, from the first and second coming is this time of this last days. Not called, say, because it's a really short period of time, but because in terms of the overall plan of redemption, there's only really one step left to come. The return of Christ to judge the living and the dead and enter into the eternal state. So what is the connection between the two? As long as we are in the last days, the day of the Lord is forever looming as an imminent event. I know even if Jesus was to return today, we'd still probably say the last days is a pretty broad period of time. And from our perspective, it is. Not so from God's. Yet it's not surprising that the Bible often connects salvation and judgment almost though they're united events, even though for us we're thinking of them being separated by a couple of thousand years now almost. Think of the expectations of the first century Jews. They expect a Messiah who would come, who would pour out all of his salvation blessings and judge all the nations done. Or consider the words of Isaiah in chapter 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. 
He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who were bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So those in Isaiah's day would hear the words, the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance being one and the same, same event. Yet you'll notice when Jesus quotes from this passage in Luke chapter 4 as defining his mission, he omits one part of that. He admits the, the reference to and the day of vengeance. Not because he was embarrassed about it, it's like, oh man, this is going to put people off guard if I talk about the bad stuff. But because he was saying, my mission in my first coming is the day of the Lord's favour. The day of vengeance, or the day of the Lord, is associated with his second coming, a day to come. Hence why he didn't refer to it on that particular occasion. But even when he does come that second time, that day of the Lord, it is both a day of salvation and a day of judgment. We mentioned about Matthew 25 and its connection. At the end of that thing, it says, and those who will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Describes it as a day where there will be an eternity for both and division for all time into two camps, either eternal punishment or eternal life. Fullness of salvation or fullness of judgment. Restoration and judgment go hand in hand in the plans of God. And God has spelled out how we return to him. Not by our actions, not by religious rules, by the means he provided. Jesus Christ crucified on behalf of sinners, raised to death in victory, received in repentance and faith. So who do you think you are? I said previously that everyone outside of the kingdom either thinks of themselves as openly hostile or just that Jesus doesn't, God doesn't exist or presumes that they are entitled to receive something from him if he does exist. Verses 4 to 6, Joel says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried out rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Now you've probably encountered people from both camps. People who are actively hostile towards God, confident that he doesn't exist, or presume that if he does exist, they're entitled to receive some blessing from him. Either God would be impressed by their good deeds, or that they think of themselves so mighty that if God does exist, it's nothing for me to worry about. But when he addresses Tyre, Sidon and the Philistines, he says, what are you to me? In other words, as mighty as you think you are, who are you in comparison to me? 
Do you think that in your actions against my people that you have triumphed over me? Do you think that's a sign that you're more powerful than me because you've taken my people and you've done this to them? Do you think you can take the things that are mine and use them to bargain against me? Ultimately, it's arrogance to think that God owes us anything. Or to think that something that he's given us, which is everything because God created all things, can be used to persuade him or twist his arm. He is the Lord. I'm not. You're not. He is the judge. I'm not. You're not. He sets the terms. We don't. He doesn't care less what you have or what you've done. And if we start to think in those sorts of terms, God will be impressed because I've done this or God will be impressed because I've got this. Does nothing more than show that you have an infinitely underestimated view of God. Because it's impossible to come to a right view of who God is and then think highly of yourself. Who do you think you are? Or the better question, who do you think God is? Because you will not understand anything in this world correctly until you come to a right view of who God is. And you'll only understand his actions if you know who he is. Including his actions in judgment. This vengeance belongs to the Lord. After rebuking Tyre, Sidon and the Philistines for taking slaves and scattering the people, he now says, Behold, I will stir up from the place to which you have sold them and I will return your payment on your head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation's far away, for the Lord has spoken. Now, as you're growing up, either in your homes or at school, someone at some point has told you, two wrongs don't make a right. And you might start to think, these people have done these things to to God's children. Now God's going to say, I'm going to do the same thing back to you. Has God operated outside of the rules? Are we uncomfortable with the fact that he says, I'm going to do these things to you? You might be uncomfortable to find out this is not an anomaly you'll actually find various times throughout the scriptures where God returns upon people the exact things that they have done to others. For a New Testament example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is a really good example of that. But there's a key difference in terms of how we respond to things and how God responds to things. God is perfect. God is holy God is not chucking a wobbly and acting out of unbridled anger, nor is he acting in a way which is unjust in any way at all. In fact, what we see and what we have seen in the book of Joel is when God disciplines, for example, in the case of the locusts, his heart in his discipline is to call the people back to himself, to desire that people would come to him that he would lavish out 
his blessing upon them. Sure, you'd be right to think, yes, it's wrong for people of Judah. If they took the initiative, oh, they did this to us, we're going to return it on them. Because it is never humanity's responsibility to pay back evil for evil. What God says through Paul in the book of Romans is, Beloved, never avenge for yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his heads. Do head, not heads, he's not from Tasmania. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Welcome to any one of Tasmanian heritage this morning. We live in a world that's full of injustice. I mean, it's just one of the natural outworkings of sin. Yes, we should stand up for justice. But retribution is not ours to be taken. To take retributive action ourselves almost denies what God said he's going to do. He says, I will repay. For us to feel the need that we need to repay suggests I know you said you're going to do it, God, but maybe it's not enough. I need to get a little bit of my own. We can be satisfied knowing that God will render justice in full for every wrong that has been done. We don't need to. It will be done perfectly. In the day of the Lord, everyone will receive for all they've done. But I'm going to put it to you, there is encouragement in the day of the Lord. We've said a number of times that Joel is not a book that commonly gets preached. Not only because it's really hard to say we're going to pre- look at the book of Joel this morning and everyone spends ages trying to find the thing. But because one of the key themes is the day of the Lord, this day when God will come in judgment. And for some people who think, oh, don't, don't, don't go there, that, that'll turn people off. Do some more Jesus stuff. Incidentally, Jesus actually spoke more about judgment than probably anybody. We saw that God is not ashamed of his acts of judgment. In chapter 1 he says, tell your children, tell their children's children about this. The return of Jesus to judge the living and the dead is an inescapable reality that needs to shape our thinking. Think about Paul when he's in custody under Felix in Acts chapter 24. Here's a description of the conversation they had together. And he, that's Paul, reasoned about righteousness, self-control and the coming judgment. He's chatting with someone who has authority to make decisions about his future, yet he does not withhold talking about the coming judgment. And brothers and sisters... I know it makes us feel uncomfortable, but we should never be silent about judgment. But, there is a big but here, whenever we speak of God's judgment, it should never be done in arrogance, it should never be done with any sense of joy or delight. I know I've encountered some Christians who love talking about judgment, So they're not silent about it, 
but the way in which they speak about it sometimes comes across like they look forward to seeing the people they're speaking to experiencing it. God himself says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. Neither should any of us. What we have seen is God's heart towards a people who who are deserving of such a day is this. Like after he described what was the day of the Lord in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2, he then said, Yet even now, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So whenever we speak of judgment, it should never be out of delight to want to see that inflicted upon anybody. It should be out of a deep love for them that wanting them to experience the same blessings of salvation that you have, that they might turn and receive his goodness. But it's not a matter to ignore. As we ponder what Paul said to the Thessalonians, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with, from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds. We'll meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So after Paul outlines these things, he says, encourage one another with these words. It doesn't say ignore it, put it into a little box and hide it. We are to live in light of the return of Christ. For two reasons. One, it encourages us personally. That one day this mist of a life or a vapour that we currently live within is nothing in comparison to the eternal blessing of being with him forever. That one day we'll receive the fullness of the salvation, all the things that grieve us about this world, all of the effects of sin on, on health, sadness and injustice will all come to nothing. But not only does it motivate us to what we're looking forward to, but it would motivate us in our actions now. Knowing that every single person that we encounter in this life will stand before the Lord on this day. As Jesus outlined in Matthew 25, it'll either be towards eternal life or eternal punishment. And if you are in Christ, you have the message of the gospel that is able to save. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't brush the concept of judgment aside. Let it comfort you, but also let it propel you into action. That through both 
your anticipation and to your confident expectation that the gospel is the power of God as you proclaim it, that all may know I am the Lord your God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive us for what has often been a neglect to speak about a coming day of judgment, even though we all know it to be true. Forgive us if we have ever been in a position where we have almost delighted or hoped that someone might experience your wrath for their sin. If that be the case, we pray that you would change our hearts, that we would want to see them experience the same forgiveness and grace and mercy that we have received as we have brought our sins to you in repentance and faith. Lord, we desire that for those who are close to us. We desire that for those that we find difficult to engage with. Lord, we thank you for the promise of what awaits us. But as we think of what awaits every single person who lives around us, may we desire and may we act with the, the enabling and empowerment of your spirit, having confidence in the power of the message of the gospel, that they too may see that day as a day to long for the completion of the salvation that has begun in them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.